All right, ladies and gentlemen, so begins the show. Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. In episode 15, we have all kinds of new stuff to cover, and Devin joins me as always to discuss the news. What's going on, man? Oh, you know, uh, usual things breaking and falling apart. Uh, currently trying to wire a Blackmagic 4K ATEM switcher into the new studio and um, trying to get it to interface with uh, some pretty ancient hardware, uh, Do-Re-Mi's and other units that should honestly be taken out in the back and shot. Uh, so the Blackmagic is a really good switcher, but that's all it does. So there's no real video playback. It doesn't have a whole lot of buffer for doing clips and things like that. It's really just built for a few graphics and a few overlays. And uh, it replacing a TriCaster makes the TriCaster look like a full-featured machine, but TriCasters, honestly, they crash on me all the time. And they always fall apart. So I appreciate the Blackmagic always works, but you're definitely giving up features unless you're going to buy several decks and put it all together. So I've been finding a way to try to duct tape the whole studio together so that we can get back into switching and be ready for a move to 4K. Now, you use a TriCaster. I've, I've seen them, but I've never actually used them. That's mostly software-based with some interfaces, right? It, yeah, it's basically a Windows 7. The HD we had was a Windows 7 uh, i7 computer. Uh, running their Blackmagic software on top of it. And then, of course, they have all their cards for their HDSTIs and uh, scalers and whatnot. So would it just lock up on you, or what What was the main issue that you ran into with it? Just random stuff. Sometimes it would boot up, and it wouldn't see one of the drives. Uh, it, it's not like it had anything rated, but there'd be four uh, hot swap drives in the front of it for keeping your media on and recording to and all that kind of stuff. It'd pop up and not find drives. Sometimes, too, uh, just like a piece of software would, if I switch between two virtual sets all day and then I switch to virtual set four, cause I hadn't switched to it in a while, I'd hit it and the entire system would lock up for five seconds, Oh, whoa. which isn't that big of a deal in pre-production. But if you were live and you cut to it, you're going to lock up your entire recording and your output is going to be frozen for five seconds. So it's one of those that it's just, it's not quite there. It has all these amazing features and everything else, but it's hard to trust it live. If you're going live to tape or recording or things like that, it's fantastic, but it just didn't seem to have the robustness to actually handle every time I hit a button, you'll do what I tell you. So so on that uh, hard drive not detecting thing, <laughs> I actually I have a quick short story about that. I went and bought these really awesome looking blue tubular cables as opposed to the normal flat SATA cables because <laughs> I was like, oh man, this will make my build look clean and nice and I'll ride them around and everything. The cables were complete junk, and I couldn't figure it out for a while. Like, my hard drives were dropping out on me. My RAID was going south. Everything was just going wrong with the system. And it turned out that there was something flaky about these round cables that just wasn't working. As soon as I replaced them with the standard red cables, the flat ones, it mm -hmm. worked just fine. Yes. So, you know, check your cables. I don't know. If, is there a way to even check SATA cables? If they work, they work, or they don't? I mean, I, I've never seen an actual tester where you could plug one side no. into the other. Usually, too, uh, I would say serial ATA cables, you probably don't – 90% of the time, you don't have an issue. In your case, you probably did end up with a manufacturer who just slapped it together. The only way I could think to test it is if you've got a good cable that you know is good, you could probably test for impedance if you've got a multi uh, multimeter, multimeter or something like that. 
Yeah. yeah, you could test for, you know, ohms and then you could jump over to your new cable and test the ohms on that to see if that's a problem. But I feel like uh, how much did you spend on these rounded cables? Did you spend five cents? No, 15 cents? no. These are premiums. Actually, I spent <laughs> um, seven or eight dollars a cable on these. Oh, and wow. I bought uh, 10 or 12 of them and I installed them in almost every system in my house and in my editing bay and in my server and everything. Like I was like, these round Before cables are awesome. Them. Yeah. I just assumed that if you spend a decent amount on these cables yeah. and they look cool and people are like, yeah, they're awesome. Then they're going to be great. Yeah. But turns out not so much. Um, and now like there's still a couple of them that have sort of lived on, but anytime I suspect a hard drive is having issues, I just completely take that cable out, throw it away and put it in yeah. a regular one. So that's what I get for That's trying to like make things look nice. And <laughs> I, you know, I would have sent them all back, but I had them for three months or so before they started really going a belly up. And the other thing is they had these really nice looking metal clips that like provided pressure mm-hmm. and stuff. They were a lot fancier than the normal ones. And as soon as I started taking them out, they were just like, they would dissolve in your hands as you pulled them out of the drives. Like the clip would fall oh, apart and the plastic would just break apart and everything. So I don't know what happened, but man, that, <laughs> that sounds sucked. like a cheap cable. Yeah, I know. That sounds like a cheap cable. I wonder if I got the bait and switch on Amazon because I, yeah, I either Maybe. bought them on Amazon or Newegg. I can't remember, but uh, I bought a bunch of them. They were highly rated. And then the ones that showed up, like they seemed okay until they didn't. And man, uh, and there's nothing worse than trying to like, you're thinking your hard drives are going bad all of a sudden or something's yeah. going wrong. And it and turns you're trying out to diagnose a- something that isn't the problem. Exactly. And you're spending all day diagnosing something that isn't the problem. It turns out <laughs> crappy cables. On that note, on to time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First up, we've got uh, some computer-related stuff here. I've been testing yeah. out a docking station, a universal docking station for my MSI GS60 laptop. If you guys have been listening to the cast for a while, you know I've talked about that laptop in the past. It's a pretty hardcore editing laptop with a 4K screen and a really nice mobile GTX 970 graphics card that can really output a lot of you know, image resolution. I mean, it has a lot of power. The system's awesome. I love it. But there's no docking station for this thing. And if you buy like a Dell laptop or some of these other um, more business oriented brands, they have that that sort of slot in the back of the laptop where you can just slide it onto one of their proprietary docking stations. Well, the MSI GS60, while it's an awesome gaming slash editing laptop, it is not set up for that sort of thing. So I've kind of been testing out these alternative methods of docking it to my desktop so that it can kind of be a desktop replacement. The one I've been testing recently here is the StarTech Universal 4K docking station, and you can find links to that in the show notes. I did a full video review on this, and it's got some good and some bad things. Uh, First, though, do you use a a laptop desktop replacement type of system, or you just use desktops only? You know, I used to. I used to have a Dell XPS um, for some editing around the studio and stuff like that. And I used to uh, have a docking station for it. And uh, I I haven't tried out any of the universal ones. uh, But to speak on behalf of Dell, I guess, the Dell docking stations tend to always be solid, robust, uh, and of course work great because they have a proprietary connection. And in this case, proprietary connections to docks is pretty much the only way to do it and to do it well. Uh, so I've always had really good luck with docking stations from manufacturers like Dell, uh, but I've never tried a universal USB-based one, no. 
Okay, so there's a there's a weird trick to this one. Um, it's USB 3.0, and however they managed to do it, I you know I haven't dug into the internals, but they managed mm-hmm. to send a 4K signal out from your computer. They managed to tie in all these other uh, USB peripherals, and it also is supposed to be able to uh, natively handle all of the stuff that's on your laptop to your keyboard monitor and all that stuff. Well, it does it. But the 4K part is where the trick is. They say it's a 4K um, adapter, and it is, but it's 4K at 30 hertz. There's not enough bandwidth inside this unit via USB 3.0 to handle 4K output. I also, I'm kind of not sure exactly how this works. How do they utilize the GPU inside my laptop via the USB 3.0 port? You know what I mean? Like, what trickery is going on in the background to make that happen? Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm actually, this is one that I'm not totally sure on because I haven't come across this in person. My guess, though, because um, uh, th- you probably have an Intel chipset inside of the board, I'm assuming that it's a similar process like Thunderbolt where USB 3 is actually using uh, the PCI Express uh, bus on the motherboard, uh, which is a big highway that more normally graphic cards and other things will run into the motherboard and into the computer. And in this case, it's rerouting some of the power from the graphics card. Instead of sending it out the video port, uh, modern graphics cards for PCI uh, 3 and other standards, and I think 2.0 as well, uh, can send audio through these buses. Now, normally, you can't get it to like the RAM as fast as you would out straight out of the graphics card, but if you stay on that bus and you just talk from one bus to another bus, you can get a lot of that performance stuck back out and through the other end. And I think that has to do with the Intel chipset that is taking video out from that PCI Express bus, conforming it to the USB standard, which of course is not Thunderbolt. So I could understand the maybe bandwidth only getting limitations. 4K. Yeah, the lim- bandwidth limitations, but then you could force it out and it just acts like another port. And it's part of that is because USB 3 is trying to be Thunderbolt, which it, so far it's doing a fantastic job because compare the two, hardly anyone's using Thunderbolt, even though it's made by Intel and you could on a spec sheet say it's a superior technology. Not a lot of people are using Thunderbolt and a lot of people are using USB 3. And now the new USB standards coming in with the new mini port that you can flip upside down and plug in any way you like, as well as higher bandwidth. And um, so I wouldn't be surprised if unlike what Thunderbolt was supposed to be, we start seeing like USB based graphic cards and things like that, that can actually be proper external graphic cards. Not like, you know, the 2.0 graphic cards that just end up throwing <laughs> up on another monitor, you know, at, at like 20 Hertz or whatever they were. I don't know if you ever use those USB like DVI yeah. port things um, and you get maybe like 15 FPS. You could actually, uh, they, they made one for a while and it was just like um, three RCA plugs on one side and a USB cable on the other. And if you were getting standard definition video off of an old cassette, it had just enough <laughs> bandwidth to handle the video coming in and whatever you know compression was going on inside of the yeah. little box, and then sending it out. So uh, they were—I mean, they were okay for what they were. USB 3.0 yeah. though uh, doesn't have enough bandwidth with this particular device to handle uh, anything more than 30 hertz. And I checked with StarTech to make sure that that was the case, and it is an actual limitation of the unit because of the bandwidth available. So if you're looking for something to dock your laptop, 30 hertz is okay for uh, basic editing. Uh, if you want to do some productivity stuff like uh, Excel spreadsheets or you know writing or something like that, that's fine. If you're going to game, no, no, don't no. do not do that. Um, but 
But you're right. With with most people, let's face it, no one is doing uh, high frame rates at 4K right now. 4K is a big enough beast as it is. So everyone's doing 29.97 at the most, uh, which, like I said, too, at the studio, the Black Magic Switcher, that's where it maxes out. It'll do 1080 at 59.96 progressive, uh, but that Black Magic Switcher is only going to do 4K at uh, 29.97. So in terms of only getting 30 hertz, that's enough if you want to watch playback. I personally, at 30 hertz, would probably have some issue with editing because I move my mouse around a lot and I click yeah, around a lot and I you notice, can actually I notice, notice the lag. That. It's um it's really sort of obnoxious when you're moving your mouse. Like I'm used to my normal panels where my mouse just flies all over the place. And at yeah. 30 Hertz, it's just slow enough that it feels like you're not moving your it's hand. Dragging. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I ran into the same problem um, early on. Uh, Seiki, I believe, made a 4K panel that was like a 41 inch and they had a 36 inch and they were the cheapest 4K panels you could get, but they were really just TVs that had been like repurposed yeah. for computer use. And those right. uh, Seiki panels were uh, limited to 30 hertz in their first generation. And when you used one, I used it for about a week and I ended up sending it back because it just didn't agree with me. But I've talked to other people that use them all the time and they don't seem to have any problem with 30 hertz. So maybe it's a no, person it's, to person type of deal or what you're used probably to. Cause we're just gamers. We just, we expect things at a high refresh rate. Cause that's how we've grown up this, this whole time. But that doesn't, you know, it's still the star tech. It makes sense. You're talking about a desktop solution. If part of your setup is on your desktop, your secondary monitor is just for program output, just to get a nice, big, clean picture of your program output, then this is totally the perfect docking solution for you. If you're more multi-monitor use when you edit, then not so much. But still, I think that especially, too, for the price. I mean, uh, 150 or so on Amazon. Uh I know you've got it on your website, but yeah, that's, bucks. to me, I say that's a reasonable price considering it's gigabit land. You get all the ports you need to, and you're only going to need to plug in one thing when you take your computer home. Well, I guess power too. It's not, yeah, there's you know, two cables to your solution. laptop. So you have a power cable and then you have your USB cable. But I did find that it was nice with um, external hard drives and stuff because, you know, yeah, you can't shove keyboard. that much stuff into your physical laptop, you know. And so I have an external uh, four gig hard drive for extra storage. I have um, I enjoy these keyboards, the actual clicky. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Mine is an, a true IBM yeah. keyboard. If you haven't a seen true one of these IBM one. and this Mechanical is a, keyboard. all spring keys. And I use something mm-hmm. like that on every single station in my house. And so having that available and then a good mouse was also really nice. Um, basically I could hook up audio equipment and everything into that hub and then just have one cable to the laptop. What's so, your WPM? Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious. I, I, I type it like, uh, I think 60 to 75 words a minute. So I'm not super yeah. fast. You just, but you love the feeling of those old spring keys. That's what you grew up on. That's what you love. Yeah. And I mean, okay, I'm going to, you can probably hear this. <laughs> You hear that like clicking? <laughs> yeah. That's the enjoyment of typing. I mean, it's yeah. so nice to have that sort of response. And I've even, I've gone through and checked out, um, they make the new like static chiclet style keyboards that are sort of spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really good article on it. If you swing over to pcper.com, they have an article on spring and buckle keyboards that covers every type and every format. And the clicking sound for me is like my typewriter. I don't know if you've ever typed <laughs> on a typewriter, but that satisfying like push down, click, pop that you get mm-hmm. from the key. And that's what I feel like I get from this. It does slow me down yeah. a little bit because typing on this, you have to travel with your fingers further than you would on a regular keyboard. But 
Sure. It's nice. I really enjoy it. Um, anyway, I, I do too. I'm, I'm mechanical too. So I'm right there with you. I don't, I don't have an old IBM keyboard, but I run mechanical keyboards as well. So one more side note, if you swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com and check out, um, if you just look for a mechanical keyboard, if you look right here, see that Jack, that is the original pin jack for an IBM cable. Uh, this cable is $30 and it adapts your old, this is a 15 pound keyboard uh, to USB and it's got uh, the internal like, uh, you know, drivers or whatever built in. So you don't have to do any sort of trickery. You just plug it into the back of this six pin connector and plug it into the back of your computer and you can use this old school keyboard just like that. It's, it's sexy. All right, moving on to screen technology here. So we stop <laughs> geeking out about keyboards. Um, yeah, right. We were talking about refresh rates, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, FreeSync has been kind of in the wings for a little while, but uh, AMD finally released an announcement, and I've got that right here. AMD is very excited that monitors compatible with AMD FreeSync technology are now available. We know gamers are excited to bring home the incredible smooth and tear-free PC gaming experience powered by AMD Radeon GPUs, AMD A-Series APUs, and so on. We're pleased to announce that the compatibility of AMD Catalyst graphics card drivers enables AMD FreeSync. Basically, they're telling us that March 19th, they're going to be releasing the drivers that will allow for FreeSync on any compatible monitor and if you're not familiar with that that means basically you're not tethered to a refresh rate on your monitor right now a lot of monitors and a lot of panels have a refresh rate of i don't know like 60 hertz is a good example a lot of panels are limited to that you can either go to 60 Mm -hmm. hertz or you can go to the next tier down which is 30 hertz or what have you but there isn't any in between with FreeSync and g-sync which are the two different amd versus uh intel's uh technology they're able to basically swerve around depending on what your graphics card is able to output i have you messed around with any of this stuff yet or i've I've been following it i haven't bought uh or purchased the technology yet i'll tell you right up um like the g-sync stuff is brilliant and the problem there is proprietary proprietary hardware i mean they're working with a lot of monitor manufacturers are trying to get it in there the problem is is that the monitor manufacturers need to include uh, interfaces that will talk with NVIDIA graphic cards. And I, I'm a huge NVIDIA guy. I mean, I you know use both. I'm not crazy about it. But AMD here's got something brilliant because their free sync for adjusting vertical sync, uh, which is very important if you're doing video gaming and stuff like that, uh, it doesn't require any kind of, as far as I've seen, any kind of special hardware from monitor manufacturers. It just requires them to open up some information on the uh, monitor ports, the display port, so that the AMD card can then reference and get the exact count and figure out how to sync its frame rate up with the monitor. So a lot of times when you're below the hertz of the monitor, you don't see any kind of vertical tearing issues. Uh, But when you go above that, a lot of people will recognize that they do see tearing issues. And the problem is, is that, oh, well, just don't produce too many frames. Because everything's happening so fast, the graphics card has to second guess how many frames it needs, and that ruins performance. So this kind of free sync and G-Sync is supposed to be the marriage of two where you can get full performance out of your graphics card without overdoing it and getting vertical tearing. And AMD's free sync solution is supposed to work with a myriad of monitors and almost all of their graphic cards. Once these drivers come out, people can actually start testing them out and seeing them. I'm super excited for it, even though I don't have an AMD card, because if it can force... Um, 
other manufacturers like NVIDIA to kind of get more open or get more people using G-Sync and things like that. It means, uh, you know, a vertical sync solution for all of us. And even though maybe as video editors, we don't run into it. Me as a gamer, I run into vertical sync all the time. Uh, that's an issue I have. And, uh, and it, it kind of sucks when you're trying to enjoy your game. You want the highest frame rate possible, but you also don't want it to see it tear. And when you spin the mouse around and you see vertical beams become three beams and stuff like that. So um, I could see also, too, this is very important if anyone's doing VR stuff. Oh, um, yeah. Having things like the Oculus Rift and stuff like that, because it's so immersive, anything like low resolution, low frame rates, or vertical tearing really destroy the virtual experience at least in my opinion, I mean, to each their own, but I think that the whole point is to get really immersed in it and we're getting there. But one of those things we need to figure out is how to get vertical synced uh, to work right with uh, those kind of VR headsets. And I know right now VR is all the craze. So now if I remember correctly, the uh, very first um, Intel adaptation of this, or I should say, um, you know, well, anyway, uh, their graphics card basically, I believe the uh, GTX uh, 960 or nine or 760 actually was the first one that was starting to do this. They actually, what did they do? They installed something on that Asus monitor. Like, wasn't it an actual attachment that you had to uh, take and upgrade your yeah. monitor? And so I think the uh, AMD version, like you said, it's just that they need some specs on the monitor. There is a caveat, though, with the AMD version of this. The FreeSync mm -hmm. has a minimum uh, frame rate that it can go to because if you get down to a low enough frame rate on a monitor, you'll actually like blink it yeah. as opposed to... Yeah, you'll, you'll notice flickering and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so they need and, the specs that, on the monitor so that they can stop it from going, you know, set a minimum threshold for frame rates. Because right. if you're gaming with, like, a, a really intensive game, it can actually push the graphics card so hard that it's only able to kick out, you know, 15 frames mm -hmm. a second. Well, if your monitor isn't capable of handling that slow of a refresh rate, it'll actually go dark and then flash and go dark and flash again in between, like, a strobing effect, so. Yeah, but the cool part is is seeing that, uh, AMD trying to go for a more open solution than NVIDIA. And what it sounds like is that not only a lot of money monitor manufacturers, of course, are going to start jumping on this free sync bandwagon, but that it won't cost any money on their part. It seems like it's part of the DisplayPort standard or something like that. It's just a matter of kind of enabling these things to talk to each other. So monitors coming out now, I wouldn't be surprised if they're all going to just stick stickers on them saying, hey, free sync, you know, enabled because it costs the monitor companies next to nothing to do it as opposed to G-Sync is a selling point and you need a custom monitor made to do G-Sync. So, yeah. And I think AMD has kind of jabbed him in the eye with that free sync label. So <laughs> good job on that. Yep. Way to stick it to NVIDIA. I'm uh, moving on down the line here. Um, this is crazy. Actually. I didn't even know these were a thing until I started doing a little more research on them. Uh, there's not been a lot of fuss about zooms lately, but it seems like out of the blue, we've gone from the megapixel count race to a optical zoom race and Canon put out the PowerShot SX60, which has a crazy zoom range of 65x. And I was trying to figure out what 65x actually means. <laughs> and it turns out that yeah. basically on its uh, half-inch 16-megapixel sensor, that's giving you a range of a, a full-frame equivalent of about 21 millimeters to 1,365 millimeters. And there's a link in the show notes, and you should definitely check this out. And it just shows what that actually means as far as taking a photo of something. This is like 
people standing on one side of the harbor and taking like close up portraits on the other side of the harbor. It is nuts. Have you seen any of these examples? I, I'm uh, yes, and I'm looking at these images right now. Um, I tell you what looks really fantastic is a lot of the uh, images of the moon, because uh, that's something yeah. that's you know kind of always difficult to do. And part of the reason why it's difficult is just because exposure. The camera doesn't know how to expose it, so you got to know how to treat your exposure. But you consider that you turn the moon from a tiny dot in your frame into a full-size moon so big that then the camera actually knows how to expose it because it's taking up most of the frame. <laughs> uh, the fact that a point-and-shoot camera is like getting what really is normally exclusive to uh, astronomy photographers, where normally they're hooking up a telescope or something like that, uh, you're getting that kind of imagery out of a point-and-shoot camera. And the zoom is ridiculous. On the very far end, I'm definitely seeing not a whole lot of contrast and a little bit of fuzziness. Well, with this, um, you're you're reaching so far that if there's any kind of um, you know fog or moisture in the air or air pollution yeah, or anything like that, definitely going suddenly to you're just going to get on. yeah wackiness. <laughs> with the moon, at least you're shooting at night, so it's such a high it's contrast from what you're shooting to like everything else that it's not as big of a deal. Plus, there's the whole it gets colder at night, so the moisture condenses out of the air and and gets gets you a little yes. bit better sky yes. visibility or, or however they say that. And right now, if you're in the northern hemisphere where it's negative five degrees Celsius, there's absolutely no particles in the air. Exactly. So That's the best time to shoot the moon. beautiful time. And I know a beautiful a, time to be doing it. I know a number of guys that do the astrophotography where they actually mm -hmm. take their camera and hook it up to their large telescope and they've got the tracking telescope that moves over the evening and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But this is really cool. And the Nikon version of this that hasn't been released yet, but it's announced it's about a $500 camera. It's the Coolpix P900. That actually has an 83X optical zoom, which is equivalent to 2,000 mm -hmm. millimeters. 2,000 millimeters. That's that is that's crazy. It's here's nuts. here's my question too. Is that I, I wonder you you reach a point right? It's to me this seems excessive. And as cool as it is, I'll I'll explain why for practicality's sake it seems excessive because it doesn't matter how good your image stabilization is at these kind of zooms. Uh, you're going to have a hard time getting a very sharp picture, even with like sunlight and stuff like that, because it takes just the smallest motion and it moves all over the place. And so I suppose if you could get like a shutter speed of uh, one two thousandth or something higher than that, <laughs> you'd probably yeah. be in. The, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'd sure. probably be OK. But you're right. Sure. I think the Nikon version does have image stabilization. Uh, I, I don't know how good that will do. I'm not sure if the Canon right? one does it's or not. <laughs> It's because but, there's there's a limit to how far the stabilizer can push the image and try to keep it in frame. So it, it, it is really fascinating, and it's it's cool that you could get a point and shoot and start taking pictures as if you've got one of those Canon L series, you know, whatever. But um, I'm looking at the uh, uh, specs right now for the SX60, and it does, in fact, have an optical image stabilization. And it also, on top of its regular optical zoom, it throws in another 260x digital zoom onto that 16.1 megapixel zoom. sensor. So uh, for those of you not familiar with uh, digital zoom, they're just basically cropping in on the sensor in order to make it appear as though you're getting more zoom out of, of the image. Um, yeah. This but you're, is... losing, you're losing fidelity and quality when you do exactly. that. But still, you know what this would be great for, though? I'm trying to think, uh, you know, people who buy point and shoots, where would this be something you could advertise to them? And it makes me think of one 
people who bring cameras to baseball games, like they're not doing photography work. They're just sitting in the stands and they like to take pictures of the game while the oh, game's yeah. going on. This would be perfect because you can basically get close up to the pitcher, seeing from what I'm seeing here. And uh, I could also see too people also like parents at their like their children's baseball game or something like that. Um, I just talked to some parents who are trying to get photos of their kids running the bases and stuff like that. And even though they're right on the sidelines, they have these, you know, maybe a, a T2I or something like that that only goes to 55. And therefore they, you know, they can't really get a picture of their son in, out in the outfield. That's a good picture because it's so far away. So um, I could definitely see it being useful for people like that. And maybe that's why they're doing this is the point and shoot market being like, Hey, for $500, look at all this zoom that you couldn't get unless you spent a thousand dollars on a consumer DSLR. There's actually one other thing that I've seen in the wild that this would be really good for. Um, I do safety videos on occasion in high voltage yards, and there mm-hmm. they have an equipment monitoring deal where they need to read the nameplates off of older equipment that they can't de-energize on a regular basis. Now imagine mm-hmm. it, with this kind of zoom, <laughs> you could actually take a like a full frame shot of the actual placard uh you know 100 feet up from where you're standing and be able to read all the information off of the placard just from the ground without having to like go climb up into the danger zone in order to get to it so and it's cheap i mean how much do you spend on a lens that would go this far oh jesus Uh, man a a 400 yeah the 200 to 400 is like a two thousand dollar lens and that's I mean, that's not nearly as much reach no. as these guys are providing. And you get into the crazy ones, and those things are like ten or $15,000 for that. Have you ever seen that Monster Sigma? I've never oh, been able yeah. to actually use it, but I've <laughs> I've been able to touch it at AB. And it's like, for those of you not familiar with it, it's uh, it's about three foot long. And How much does it weigh? All that glass. I don't know how much it weighs, <laughs> but it's big. At the biggest it's diameter. Lens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could hold it maybe like this, you know, like, like a, a bazooka. bazooka on yeah. your shoulder. Hold it on your shoulder taking pictures. But yeah, so this is, uh, that's a really interesting thing. And then the other thing is wildlife. Um, honestly, oh, if yeah. you could strap this down to a tripod and you want to shoot uh, birds during the day or animals. And in fact, one of the weird things that you don't really think about with super zooms is that you almost don't need a macro lens when you have a super zoom because you can True. get far enough away that you can get the focal le- or the distance you need to focus on something <laughs> and you still have enough zoom that you can get in there like you're right on top of it. And one of the yeah. things I do, um, sometimes I have to take some product shots or, of, of plants and things like that. And uh, I use the uh, 70 or the um, not 70 to 200, the 35 to 100 millimeter F2.8 on my Panasonic lens or on my Panasonic camera because you can get the focal range on that is I think it's like a foot and a half or two foot. So you can zoom all the way in to the mm-hmm. flower or whatever, fill the entire frame with that. And you know, you're not using a macro, you're using a zoom instead that yeah. just has a lot of reach. So probably has a really impressive macro mode. Yeah. And knowing I, that's a point and shoot, it probably has a macro switch. Yeah. And I wonder what the minimum, I, I can't find it in the specs right now and I'm looking, but I wonder what the minimum focal distance is on this at full reach. If it's like a couple feet, man, imagine what that would do. <laughs> yeah. That is basically a macro, you know? Yeah. All right. Moving on down the line from that craziness to some more craziness <laughs> here, uh, memory card testing. And this is actually a pretty good video. You guys should probably check out. I've got a link to it in the show notes here. They stress test some SD cards as well as do write tests on this using both Magic Lantern as well as some other um, testing software on your, their computer to, to find out what the write performance is for memory cards. And there are a ton of memory cards out there. 
And to summarize this for you, if you're not going to go watch that video, basically what they're telling you is like this card right here is the uh, Transcend UH3 card. I don't know if you guys can see that. I have the autofocus actually turned off on this thing because it hunts all the time. But this card is about 60 bucks. It performs pretty well. And if you look at the list, uh, the the SanDisk Extreme Pro, whatever label they put on it these days, Uh did seem to be the the best performing. But Sony's uh, higher-end UHS-3 cards kept up pretty well, as did a number of the other ones. So... You know, it looks kind of like there's not a huge difference in range between the lowest end card and the highest end card looking at their little infographic here. Um, it's cool to check out if you're if you're really interested in memory card speeds and stuff. I don't know, Devin, do you have anything to add to the memory card testing in general? I do some, but I just use Crystal Benchmark and I don't really get too deep into it. I just want to see that it meets its card rating. I, yeah, you know... um, I, I think that what I like is the way he tested it with a microphone. It seems kind of uh, barbaric, but then it's also super practical for, I mean, for a lot of us, we're concerned with video. So we shoot, we're, we're concerned about constant data throughput. So Crystal Benchmark or ATTO or whatever you're using uh, to get your benchmarks on your SD cards is what we usually do. In this case, though, like seeing how the buffer works with the camera and everything else gives you a much better real world picture of if I'm trying to do sports photography or something, how is this card going to hold up? And I think each card, even though they may have constant read and write speeds that are a little different, uh, actually writing all of these files from a buffer, from a certain type of camera and everything else. I think this is a good way to test how memory cards work with your camera. And it's an easy way that you just, you just record audio of the shutter. And it's a really simple way for you to lay all this up and go, Oh, Hey, the sand disc, you know, I can get a much longer burst out of it, uh, but it's not going to keep holding a burst as opposed to, you know, uh, a Kingston card or something like that. So it's, it's an interesting way. Like when I look at this, I see that a lot of them after the second burst, cause there's, you know, the first where they're using up the Ram basically in the camera and then, and then they start that. writing to the card. And a few of these cards seems like after something like eight pictures, after they've used up the buffer, uh, there's a long pause before it can write again. And some cards don't have that long pause or some cards that have that long pause later. They, they can shoot 10 pictures before there's an actual long pause. Yeah, I'm looking at and the so culprits seeing, here. It looks like a data is the uh, one of the ones that has the big gap in there. And Kingston is the other yeah. one. So. A data is a card that's failed me a number of times and Kingston (laughs) is not necessarily a brand you can trust, but yeah, you're right, man. This, the gapping on here, that's a really interesting way to test memory cards. And that's something you won't pick up in a benchmark. And that's why I find this kind of a really cool test for photography because you can see, Oh, you know, yeah, this works as well. But after eight photos, it's not going to grab that picture right when I'm expecting it to. Because, uh, you know, you, there's kind of a cadence, and, you know, depending on how you shoot your photography, that may or may not work for you. So little things like that kind of give you a good idea of if, if this card actually maintains its throughput or if it's kind of an erratic throughput and it just averages out to a certain read and write speed. And so that's how it's marketed. Yeah, and it so, depends on if you have an actual camera that can, you know, maintain that sort of shutter speed. Like this uh, 6D in front of me here, is only rated for, I believe, four frames a second. So it doesn't move fast enough to really, you know, do this sort of test, whereas the new 7D Mark II can really fly through photos. What is that, 12 frames a second, I think? So I think it's about 12, yeah, 11 yeah. and a half maybe. It's keeping up with the, the 1D series. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing where you're going to really push it. And sports photography, too, is where you would want to use, like, that sort of burst rate, you know. 
Well, and, and you can see too, if these faster, more expensive memory cards make a difference on your camera, because once again, it's not just the buffer in the camera, but also the IO of how fast it can write a card. This will show you if, Hey, I could buy a really expensive fast memory card, but I won't take pictures any faster because whatever camera I'm using has a limited IO and that's just as fast as it's going to take the pictures. So it, it can tell you a little bit about how your camera works and how much you can rely on it to take pictures with certain memory cards. So I love the fact that anyone can do this at home with just a computer microphone and audacity and start benchmarking their cards in real world situations. One other thing to point out too, guys, is um, if you're shooting 4K, a lot of the Kodak limitations on 4K capable cameras right now is about 100 megabits per second, uh, where you actually run into really saturating your card's write speeds unlike the GH4 is actually when you're in that uh, 1080p 200 megabit Kodak range, that's where it's really writing a ton of data to the cards. The 4K version, a lot of the 4K Kodaks that are available are capped out at uh, 100 megabits per second. So if you're UHS-3, even with the, these tests, usually you're in the clear. And again, I use the I use all kinds of cards. I've got an entire collection, but lately I've been buying these Transcend 128 gig cards and not having any trouble at all. So this is actually, just on the side note, is one of the few cards I've tested where what the manufacturer rated it for, uh, 65 or 60 megs a second write, it actually did better in test results than it claims it did. Whereas with uh, SanDisk's cards, I've always had it where they have up to or almost 95 and then you actually get like 76 or 74 or something like that i don't know if that's something you've run into or not that is that is something i've run into and um especially too uh you know nobody knows if uh black magic's got any more uh announcements under their sleeve for nab uh but i'm guessing that there's going to be a new pocket cinema camera i'm just just based off the huge sale they gave and i take it that they're trying to move stock um that we could have something else coming up. And if it's another SD solution, and even if it's maybe not 4K, let's say that you're trying to shoot 2K raw or something like that, or or, or 4K at ProRes or something like that. Um, uh, a lot of them advertise UHS-3, but that really seems to mean nothing in these upper ranges. You really need to see benchmarks and tests and see how reliable these cards are. Because... Uh, whether it's Kingston or whatever, all of them, none of them, there doesn't seem to be that one brand. It used to be SanDisk, and that seems to be becoming well, less Lexar and less true. Lexar is kind of still a top-notch. Lexar, yeah. Le Lexar does. They're also, aren't they the most expensive too? Yes. Um, they're <laughs> double what everybody else charges. I'm guessing if yeah. we start to see that sort of um, write capacity, you know, maybe doing ProRes at 4K or something like that, we're going to see it in the... Um, faster compact flash card standard because they just came out with i believe it's uh is it 4.0 uh, is the new C, uh, cf standard and i know that a lot of people have been referring to it as cfast i i guess you can call it cfast if you want but um basically it's like i believe it's capable of up to 600 meg writes and reads uh in that standard which is the uh, compact flash 4.0 yeah. standard so i think maybe that's what we'll see because the rumors for the new 5d uh, mark 4 are that it's going to have a CFast card uh, reader inside. And the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, what is it? The I believe the the smaller version of the Ninja, the one that doesn't have a screen, what do they call that? Like the, you know, um, throwing uh, yeah. throwing star or something the, like that or shirking? Yeah, throwing star. 
yeah, I thought oh, I thought it was called the Ninja, but you're right. It's not called the Ninja. It's not ninja called the ninja. ninja. Ninja Star. Ninja Star. Ninja you're Star. Right. There you go. I yeah. for some reason all the Ninja right. references were confusing <laughs> me, but um, that one has uh, a, a CFast standard built into it so that it can write to those faster compact flashcards. I think that standard is backwards compatible with the older cards. Somebody correct me mm-hmm. on that if I'm wrong, but. Uh, that's what I think and kind of see as the next generation of fast writes until uh, there's another standard of, you know, SD mm-hmm. card. Because right now we're not really we're kind of maxing out this format. And I know they there's a new a new version that they were working on and announced, but I don't think we've seen it in the wild yet. That's supposed to allow for 256 meg writes on. Uh, say, or on compact flash cards, or not compact flash, but um, right. you know what I mean. These cards right here that I'm holding up that I can't talk today. Digital cards, yes. Thank you. Um, those cards are supposed to be uh, able to handle more, but I don't think we've seen them on the market yet. I'm not sure what the generation or rev is for those. So, well, uh, and it's it's so it's so difficult to pump a whole lot of not just data, but a whole lot of storage space into a form factor that big. Uh, and so it's the same reason why when Panasonic came out the P2 cards, um, the form factor makes sense, which it still is proprietary, but they're using the same form factor as that CMFA or whatever that laptops were using, which yeah. is based off of the compact flash form standard. And it's, it's because it gives you enough pins so that you can talk intelligently to your data, just kind of like a parallel port, but I'm pretty sure they're using a serial connection. Uh, but still it gives you the throughput you need theoretically as fast as anything else that could be made. It gives you the throughput you need. It's just a matter of having controllers that are fast enough and memory that's fast enough. And, and the money to buy P2 cards because those things are freaking expensive. I, well, I love to how they came out with an adapter that's supposed to let you use SD cards, but then it only worked for their special high speed SD cards, which when you added it up was still the cost of a P2 card. <laughs> I was like, all right, so what's the point of buying your SD cards then? Uh, but I, I think too, we're probably going to see a move back to compact flash. Now that compact flash has started to speed up, has come out with a new standard. Uh, cause SD with the UHS and all that has just been slowly walking away from compact flash in terms of speed. And now it's time for compact flash to come back and go, no, 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 we're going to double down and show you guys what real data rates about and what real storage is about. Cause you can buy what? 256 compact flashes not the cfast but i'm pretty sure the older models Yeah, you can buy 256 gig i think they have 512 gig now available yeah. in compact flash format um they're really expensive they're like eight or nine hundred dollars but they are available the biggest card i've seen so far as far as the sdxc format is um i believe 256 gig there might be something bigger than that available i just haven't seen it when you get up to these 128 gig cards they start to feel different than the regular cards like they're you know maxing out the <laughs> amount of chip that they can fit in side of it so i'm not sure what's going on but it might just simply be that they need the form factor of a cf card in order to accommodate that much you know chipset inside of the device the um the old uh uh, compact flash cards were also sort of i believe they were a mini standard originally of the uh, parallel ata standard back in the day because there was adapters where you could actually go from the big pins on a pata drive down to a cf card and I think somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the original 1D or 10D that I used a long, long time ago had a four gig spinning CF card. It was an actual hard drive inside of a compact flash card. Yeah. And that was four gig. And that was the only way you could get four gig into that space was to actually have a real hard drive in t- inside of this tiny <laughs> little deal. So just some no, interesting. You're, old you're right. Cause 
I think on my old uh, home media center, I think I got an adapter to go IDE to Compact Flash so that um, it would boot up faster. Because back then, Compact Flash was what solid state is now. Uh, a lot less storage for a lot more money, but you had instant read and write speeds. And back then, that's how you did it without raids if you wanted uh, fast boot up times and things like that. Though the memory would die on you after a few years because it wasn't built to actually be proper uh, read and write constantly like that. So. Now, moving on down the line here, we've got a pretty budget item that's really kind of interesting. Uh, everybody's familiar with a GoPro, and those, everybody's seen those. But there are a bunch of other like Asian brands, basically, that are coming out with really low-priced versions of GoPro clones. Let's call them a GoPro clone. Uh, this one is actually <laughs> ju- it's just called Action Cam YAI, and it's a $64 GoPro size camera that's using a Sony 60, mil, uh, 60 megapixels XMR sensor. And that's the same sensor that they have crammed into a lot of Sony's point and shoot cameras. I've been looking at the uh, video footage for this and it doesn't look too bad, but it looks like what? What would you say? Probably the level of the uh, a GoPro 2, maybe? Maybe the 3 Silver Edition, I, would, I suppose? I would say I mean, the three to me, I saw a little bit more clarity and that could just be codec. It could be that the glass and the sensor are good. It's just the codec they're using is relatively small. That's usually where this stuff uh, lives or dies when it comes to cheap uh, cameras is the codec that they use to sit there and um, get the data out there. Because it's, I'm looking at it and I see a GoPro 2 but it looks like slightly more resolution and, but I feel like the clarity is probably coming down to the lens because for $70, I can't imagine how good of a cut you're going to get from a lens. So yeah, they're probably using um, a lower quality bit of glass, but still $64. If you were looking for an action cam for your setup and you're on a pretty tight budget, this is by far the cheapest GoPro equivalent camera you can find on the market right now and actually i take that back there's one other one if you really want to get shady go to amazon (laughs) and they sell these weird cameras the resolution is is mediocre and the kodak is mediocre but they're in the shape of a key fob and they are 1080p camera that turns on and off based on your unlock button. So I think <laughs> it's what people who are creepers use to film stuff. Oh jeez. But probably yeah. The cameras are like $25 or $30. They they film uh, 1080p footage. They're not great for low light or anything like that, but they're really cheap and you can stop on them, destroy them or whatever and it doesn't really matter because they're only 25 bucks. So that's another I'm one to check waiting. out. I'm still waiting for a side-by-side because, I mean, technically the specs outweigh uh, the GoPro Hero right now that's being sold for 150 as the low-end GoPro camera. Because technically speaking, this camera says it'll do 1080p at 60. Is that codec worth anything? I'd Probably not. I'm not sure. But uh, also, too, I mean, it's supposed to have onboard noise reduction and digital image stabilization, which I'm sure is just because they're using probably a sensor processor uh, or a Sony processor along with the Sony sensor. So uh, it's got a few more features that are supposed to make it doable. Like I said, I didn't see anything in the video that necessarily wowed me uh, other than the fact that it looked a little better than a GoPro 2. So, but for the price, I know a lot of people who still shoot with GoPro 2s because they got a bunch of them sitting around. Um, it's weird to say, but maybe if you don't have money to like possibly put your $400 GoPro in a dangerous situation. <laughs> you could buy the $60 GoPro clone exactly. and put that in a dangerous situation. Um, 
Because you could almost treat this at six at sixty five dollars, you could treat it like a throwaway for most productions. I mean, you spend you know three times that on craft services. Now, if you uh, <laughs> haven't taken a look at this yet, you can find more information on it at mi.com. Uh, that's the e-commerce site that sells it right now. You, it's not really available in the United States. I think it's showing up on eBay and a few other things, but I, it might have an official le- uh, release later this year on like Amazon or something like that. So if you want it, you're going to have to kind of hunt for it unless you live in China. Uh, it's cool though. $65, $64, man. Uh, that's a, still, it's amazing that you can get a camera like that for that price. One other thing, if you're looking for another another cheap camera option, and this is kind of a weird one, but I just realized this the other day when I was looking for a replacement cell phone. If you go onto eBay and you look for cameras or for cell phones that are um, basically somebody like stole it or they they yeah. uh, didn't pay their cell phone bill and under contract and then they kept their phone, those phones are disabled, so you can't use them on your regular cell phone network. Sometimes you can flash them or whatever, but a lot of those Samsung phones have a 4K resolution uh, and yeah. they're able to film 4K inside of that phone. And you can buy those uh, phones that are basically banned from the network on eBay for you know $120 or $130. So that's another weird, cheap kind of hack the system way to get a video <laughs> camera that is really cheap and at 120 bucks that's still cheaper than some of the other action cams that shoot 4k it's not as durable sure. but you could probably throw it into like one of those weird plastic rubberized cases or something like that and chuck it at a wall and <laughs> yeah. it might turn out okay who knows sure. yeah <laughs> now speaking of gopro i kind of got this on a side note here and this is basically a simple bag from any microphone that you buy. In, in this case, this is the bag for the Rode mic that I'm using right here, but you can go get these camera bags for a, a couple bucks on eBay or on Amazon. And what I'm using this for, if you look inside, it's my GoPro charger, all my GoPro batteries and my GoPro. And this all fits into this like $3 case that helps you keep track of everything. If you've ever thrown these into your camera bag, if you have a large bag with a lot of lenses, it's pretty easy for these tiny little GoPro batteries to get lost and misplaced. But if you can keep the charger, the unit itself, and everything else all together in one spot, that's definitely a, a really easy way to maintain and you can also put a label on this too. So if you're sending someone to your bag to grab something for you, they know where it is and what it is. And you have all your stuff in one spot. Do you use any bags or organizing methods for your camera bags to like keep your stuff together? No, no, not at all. Uh, no, I, I do exactly what you say where I put uh, the GoPro batteries in one of the lens cubbies uh, in my DSLR bag and then I lose them and I got to hunt all over my bag to try to find them. Uh, occasionally there'll be zipper pockets that I keep stuff in, but uh, for the GoPro, I like to just put a lens cap in and throw it in the bag. A lot of times I use my GoPro without a case, uh, which isn't always a popular opinion. But uh, so, <laughs> Well, as you can see, time, mine is protected with this. Also, these bags, um, a lot of them are soft. So they have a like a soft fuzz on the inside and they're a little bit padded. So unless you're like rubbing your lens up against there, you're probably okay. But I would recommend yeah. if you're throwing it in a bag that you store it in either the case that it comes with or with a lens protector of some kind. Um, and the lens protectors are cheap. They, yeah. They're like five, maybe 10 bucks off of eBay. You've got one you can actually see through as well. So um, 
a lot of the time too, it's uh, I like to try to keep it attached to whatever rigging I'm going to be using, whether it's a, a zip tie mount or something like that. I'm a big fan of the zip tie mounts that were out on the uh, Kickstarter page that a guy did. I think yeah. I got three of them for 25 bucks, and they were actually super well made. They had a padded bottom. They're super tight, and with good zip ties, they hold like nothing else. So I've been a huge fan of that along with uh, the clamp and stuff. So, But for me, no, I need to find a better solution, and just adding another bag or box I need to carry with me isn't exactly an ideal solution for me. It's one thing if all I was doing was carrying GoPros, then a bag or a box for them would be fine, you know, like a mini Pelican looking thing. But for me with all my other gear, I'm like, I just need something small. And that's really the perfect solution because a lot of people do have mic bags lying around. Well, and the other issue I ran into too is when I upgraded to the Hero 4 Black and I have this, I had two GoPro systems with two different battery types laying around in my camera bag. So then I was like, Hey, grab me a GoPro battery out of my bag. And they would grab one. And it was the one for the three instead of the four. And you're kind of like, well, what, what, what's going on here? So by keeping these in two separate bags, I just say, go grab the two black bags out of my camera bag and bring them to me. And then I have both GoPros there ready to go. I've got the batteries, the chargers and all that. And one of the other things, um, the new hero Four black edition, I don't know. Have you, you've seen the batteries, right? Those little skinny ones that slide in and pop out. Um, those, they sell a couple of different versions of this on Amazon and they're pretty handy. It's a three battery charger that just plugs into any USB port. So if you go buy one of the more powerful bat, uh, USB chargers for like your cell phone or something like that, you throw that into the bag, you have this three cradle charger and you can always keep three batteries charging while you're using one because even though they say that the capacity for these new skinny batteries is better, it's not. I get maybe 35 or 40 minutes max of recording time out of those new batteries. Whereas I at least got an hour. I I got an hour out of the old ones. So that's a little frustrating. Also kind of back to this camera here. Did you see anything on batteries for this thing? Is it an internal battery or? I'm guessing it's internal because to be honest, that's probably how they kept the price down. It seems like maybe it would be an extra selling point, but I think just like the black magic with the cinema camera, it's a lot cheaper to make an internal battery than to design the and engineer a battery door and a battery loading system and a battery that fits it. Um, the same reason why the pocket camera had just used Nikon batteries because making your own battery system costs money. Yeah. And with how cheap this is, I would not be surprised if it's just an internal USB charged battery that they just go, that's that. Uh, because you think about how much they've crammed into that little spot it takes, you know, you've seen GoPros. GoPros, up until the slide loading thing, just had a plastic little door that came completely off because yeah. hinges it was easy to lose. Easy to and lose. It was easy to lose. And I never took it, I never put it back on, anyways, because, you know, it, so uh, I'm pretty sure no one had, I haven't seen any comments on it, but just from the pictures and looking all around it, I think it's internal. And for the price, that's probably as good as you can expect. Now, shifting directions here, I wanted to throw a question out to everybody that kind of watches this podcast and listens to it. I've got a Canon 6D right here, and I've used Magic Lantern on a lot of cameras, and I'm currently renting out my 5D Mark III and using my 6D as kind of the minimum replacement while that's out and in service. But I've never actually run Magic Lantern on the 6D. Does anybody out there know... If the USB hack that works on the T2i, the uh, 5D Mark II, and so on, works for audio with Magic Lantern and the 6D, 
I'm going to test this out eventually. I just haven't had time to do so yet. But uh, I wasn't able to find anything specific in the forums when I was glancing earlier today. And my camera just went out on rent on Friday. So I haven't had a chance to mess around with the 6D. And I'll keep you posted when I find something out. But if any of you guys have a head start on this and have already been messing around with it, uh, let me know. Devin, do you know anything about the 6D with I the. Don't. Okay, yeah, I, I don't, don't either. I, the problem, I haven't even touched the 6D, so. The problem with the Magic Lantern. Uh, community and it's not a problem they're a great community uh, those guys are doing some awesome stuff but the even though they try to bring the unified system together where everything's all in one track there's still the nightly builds there's still the daily builds and there's still a bunch of like sort of offshoots that are going on out there that are provide extra features uh, for example the eos m has kind of an offshoot that doesn't go with the unified magic lantern uh, install guide that uh, allows you to put stuff on there that wasn't otherwise available there. I think they're still on beta on the original 7D and uh, Canon's been releasing all these other cameras in between that are kind of in questionable states where the T2i really had a lot of development and the 5D Mark II and Mark III. The rest of the cameras, I don't know as much about it and it's not quite as clear what's going on with Magic Lantern in those it's cameras. It's not. Their, their website's as clear as mud for sure. Yeah, I was digging around on the site. I didn't find anything. Um, if I do find something, I'll post it. And also, uh, if you swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com and check out the 7D post I did on that, that has a link to... The, there's a guy that just maintains the most recent version of the 7D Magic Lantern hack. And I have a link to that in the on the site. I'll try and put that on the show notes if I remember. But he does a really awesome job of tracking every evolution of the 7D Magic Lantern update and then posting it right away. So you have hourly and daily posts of like what the newest firmware is and what the fixes are and what they've added to it. So hopefully I'll find something like that on the 6D. And if one of you guys knows about that, let me know. Now, Devin, this next one is actually something you added to the show notes. Uh, tell me about this device to device syncing with sync two. Sure. Sure. So BitTorrent sync, uh, just to bring everything up to speed, uh, which DJ does know something about, even though he acts like he doesn't cause he does use it. Uh, BitTorrent sync <laughs> uses BitTorrent technology, uh, to keep two folders in sync on two different devices across the internet, or even just across your local network. Uh, it's fantastic because you could think of it. A lot of people compare it to a Dropbox, except without the cloud part. So there's unlimited size and things that you can sync. Uh, what you do lose by it not being kind of in the cloud is that in order to access wherever the files are, that system has to be on. Uh, how does it apply to filmmaking and people like us? Uh, for me in my work, a lot of the times if I'm working with another editor, we will set up a BitTorrent sync between us. And once all the files have propagated to each other's computers, it will keep the project files in sync, as well as if anyone adds any assets or anything else that is necessary to um, keep the workflow going. So they just released a huge update, and it's built mostly around no, uh, mobile devices, but it's called Sync 2.0, and there's uh, two large pieces of it that are important. One is that they're kind of setting up a user account system, but they're not which sounds weird, but they're kind of doing a personal key that you'll share with all of your local devices. So then you can kind of remotely see what each of your local devices has. And this is great because point number two is that you can go and download a specific file from any one of these shares that you have set up throughout your sync system. Uh, because normally on mobile, you'd have to like sync an entire folder or you could like upload one or two files to it or something like that or download a few files, but you could sync specific files 
on your mobile device uh, instead of the entire share if you're trying to get something synced, as well as uh, they increase the way it does backups for your phone and syncs your photos and stuff like that. The thing that's kind of uh, upsetting for a lot of people is that this update, I mean, they're no longer going to continue the old version because it's the old version, uh, 1.4, but 2.0 actually adds a price to it. And what that means is that in order for you to get um, on-demand uh, from the, your desktop, as well as changing permissions for, uh, you know, after you share a file with somebody, you could change its permission to say, I gave them write access and now I just want them to have read-only access. You got to spend 40 bucks a year, which to me sounds a little expensive. It's not quite Dropbox, or I guess it would be Dropbox for the smaller ranges, like maybe 100 uh, gigs or yeah. something like that, or 50 gigs. Um, but considering that they aren't hosting any of my files, I'm literally paying them software and then I'm hosting all my own files and using my mo- my own internet and systems to propagate my files. 40 seems like a lot, especially for a monthly price or a yearly price. And the fact that um, uh, they don't, it's, it's, it's like I'm sharing my own files and it's my own data plan. And it's my own this, and my own that, and you're not hosting anything. And I totally, I have no problem with paying them for software. Uh, but 20 bucks or 10 bucks would seem much more appropriate considering that they're just developing the software, which it, it, it's based off of BitTorrent, which like a lot of the hardware coding for how it talks over the network has been done. They've just been improving it and making it more user friendly. And I love what they do. And I think they do great work. I'm still on the fence if I'm going to spend this 40 bucks. What stinks that a lot of people are in an uproar about is that 1.4 had no limitations on how many folders you share. Yeah. And like I said before, you do have unlimited size of data. You, you could upload as much data as you want. You could upload 10 terabytes to your sync devices if you want to. It doesn't matter. But the update to 2.0 says you're only allowed, I think it's 16 folders. It might be 12 folders. I'm not quite sure. But only 12 of those directories. Now, of course, you can have subfolders and everything else. But if you're sharing a lot with other people, uh, that's something that makes you go, wait a second. I, what if I get to 16 and I would just want to share one more folder? It seems like a lot. And it's so it's kind of them going back. They said they weren't going to lock down any features that were previously available. And unlimited folders was a feature that was previously available. And now if you want unlimited folders, you're spending 40 bucks a year. So I'm still on the fence. You aren't required to upgrade. You could keep using 1.4 and 1.4 works well. It actually doesn't really have any problems that I've really come across. Um, it does at least until Windows 10, and then, you know, now maybe it doesn't oh, work probably, anymore. sure. And now you yeah. have to pay so, because you're upgrading. So it's, it's slightly upsetting, and I'm still on the fence, too. I'm not sure if I'm actually going to buy into it because 40 bucks a year just kind of seems like a lot to me for a piece of software that sits in the background and sinks. And it's like, I already pay for a Dropbox. I already pay for Google drive and I pay for cloud uh, backup for backing up my files into the cloud so that if there's a fire, I still have my client's files. So it's, um, it's one of those that I go, I really don't want to pay another company, another, you know, yearly fee. Uh, And in this case, they aren't even storing anything for me. It's, you know, 40 bucks a year could even get you unlimited storage in the cloud with crash plan or a few other of these plans. Yeah. Uh, So 40 bucks a year for a company that's not hosting anything. It just seems a little bit excessive. I do believe they should be paid for their work and I would gladly pay maybe even 25 a year. It's just 40 a year just seems like a kind of lot. And maybe I'm, I'm nitpicking and you can tell me that, you know, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's 40 bucks and it's, you know, over the course of a year. But well, if you're uh, looking for the mobile features, there are a few um, other apps that provide that sort of thing and work interchangeably with like um, I run a free NAS here. So there's a plugin for free NAS. And
and the app for Android users, I don't know if there's an iPhone version of this, but ES File Explorer File Manager allows you to basically yeah. set a solid IP address for whatever device you're trying to sync with, and it gives you remote access to all those files. So this does suck that they're charging for it where it was free before. And anytime you go from free to <laughs> paid, there's going to be some outrage. And I'm with you. Yeah, like if, um, I know. if someone's like, Hey, here's a free product and you get used to it and you like it. And then they're like, now it's going to cost you. And it's going to cost you quite a bit. I mean, 40 is it, you know, exorbitant, but it is enough that it's like, well, maybe I'll just find a workaround and use something else because I don't yeah. want to give you 40 bucks. You know, I, like I said, if it was 20 a year, I probably wouldn't think about it. I would have already bought it. Because 20 a year, other people may argue 10, but I go, I've been using these guys' software, and their software is fantastic. They update it all the time. 20 bucks, I go, that seems more than reasonable. Uh, it's the 40 that seems a bit off. But the software is great. Uh, it works on all of your NASes, uh, it, whether it's Seagate, Western Digital, uh, Synology, Drobo, QNAP, which is my favorite for doing NAS stuff. Uh, these uh, it works on all these as different apps or jails or whatever the different NASs call them, as well as if you're doing free NAS, it has support for that as well, like you said. So uh, how I love to use it, one way I do it is that all my mobile devices being uh, my laptop, my desktop, uh, my phone and my tablet, they all have a shared folder. Of course, on my phone, I tell it to only sync when it's on Wi-Fi, so I'm not chewing up my data plan. But uh, I have my like kind of renders folder set up as a shared device. And since everyone's on the same network, as soon as my render's done, within a minute, it gets propagated to all my devices and I don't have to think about it. And when I grab my laptop and run out to meet a client, I can right then show them all the renders I have and I didn't have to think about it. It just automatically got sent to all my different devices. So uh, that's one way that I use it, along with, like I said before, using it with editors and different things like that. But it's a great way too, just to keep uh, a few of your mobile devices and your desktop in sync, just one folder that kind of, hey, I want these files to always be available wherever I'm at, uh, which is good too. If you have a few reels or a few things you want to show off to somebody, if somebody's like, hey, do you have any work you can show me? You can pop out your phone and you've got files physically on the phone. You don't have to go to YouTube and stream it. And then they see an ad or something like that. You know, you could have a much proper uh, experience when you're trying to share your uh, content, or your portfolio. Yeah, I actually just keep stuff loaded on um, a Nexus 7 tablet that I have in my bag. So I don't really worry <laughs> about like syncing as much because I just have like four or five different reels that not, I keep on Not there. all of us have 20 tablets. That's DJ. true. That's very true. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to, I'm probably going to need to scale down a little bit because uh, this studio, as you can see now, is like, it's getting out of control. <laughs> There's stuff all over the place. And uh, I might have to have a garage Just sale suit or something. Out. Yeah, it's getting to the point where I was unpacking boxes from my last move, and I found a bunch of camera gear that I bought and haven't used for this whole time. And they they weren't anything super important, but they were those um those magnifier extenders where you you basically screw it onto the threads of another lens, and it turns it into a wide angle lens or a wider lens than it was before. Mm-hmm. And I have those. I bought them, and I was like, oh man, I'll use these for stuff. And then they got packed away in a box, and I haven't used them for two years. And, and now forgot. it's like. Do I even need these? Probably not. Yeah. You know, I have wide angle lenses. Why did I buy these again? Impulse buy, I guess. I don't know. That's <laughs> crazy. Uh, moving on to stuff I want to buy. Man, have you seen the Olympus 40 millimeter to 150 millimeter f2.8 lens? This thing is huge, crazy, and sexy. And uh, I kind of want it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it is sexy. I'm not gonna lie. It's um. It's fantastic. I saw, yeah, I saw your post earlier on it, and it, I, 
where's you don't have a link here for the images uh but yeah sorry i don't have the test images linked but um this thing okay so to start out with for those of you who aren't familiar with it uh panasonic's version or closest version is the uh, 35 to 100 millimeter f2.8 and that does have ois which is optical image stabilization whereas this is an olympus lens and if you're familiar with the difference between olympus and panasonic panasonic does stabilization in the lens and olympus does the stabilization in the body itself so the downside to this olympus 40 to 150 millimeter f2.8 is that it does not have internal stabilization But the upside is that Olympus builds their lenses like a tank. They're all metal. They're all tough. I mean, they claim weather sealing. I've gotten mine, my Olympus uh, 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8 underwater, not under underwater, but I ran through a a waterfall. Long story there, but that happened. And so (laughs) it does a good job of sealing and stuff, but you don't have any stabilization. This lens is big. And something you mentioned earlier about those super zooms is, uh, IS is pretty important when you've got this much reach. You agree? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And and but uh, what's I mean, what's the pricing difference? Because uh, are you comparing it to the L series Canon? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my. I have the seventy to two hundred f two eight IS, and I believe I spent like sixteen hundred or so dollars on that. And this is priced at about that. If you go on eBay right now, you can find gray market versions of this for, yeah. I've seen it as low as uh, $13.99. So that's like, I mean, that's a lot of reach, A. And it's yeah. more reach than I get out of my 7200. And even though for Micro Four Thirds, this is a monster lens, it's actually mm-hmm. pretty petite comparatively. Um, I was just holding up the 6D earlier, and this has the uh, one th- or 135 millimeter F2. Uh, prime on it mm-hmm. and the prime here is about the same size as that olympus uh that 40 to, yeah exactly so it seems big but then when you think about it in comparison to everything else it's not that huge it's actually a fairly petite lens uh in, as mm-hmm. far as full frame lenses go and that kind of reach man it's 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 it, it, it is attractive. You're, you're right. You're you are trading away image stabilization, and what you're getting in return is portability. Uh, you know, for some people who maybe say they work in LA and all they do is just uh, go around LA shooting, portability isn't that important. But for other shooters like us, where we jump on planes and we have to go and meet clients at other crazy locations or uh, outdoor outdoorsy scenery people, when you're hiking to a location to shoot. Uh, how much weight you put in your bag makes a big difference. And the fact that you're getting this beautiful glass um, at something that even though it's a full metal body, it's probably, I mean, I don't see any stats on it. I'm assuming it's probably maybe a pound and a half, uh, 1.9 pounds. Yeah, the comparisons I saw were it's a little bit lighter than the uh, Tamron 24 to 70 IS full frame. So if you imagine that one, which is a fairly chunky lens, but not extremely heavy, it's lighter than Canon's 24 to 70 offering. It, Absolutely. It, that puts it into like big but not obese range, you know what I mean? Com- especially compared to something like the uh, 70 to 200. And I think right behind me, back there where my finger's at, there's the <laughs> white, giant white bag of for the uh, 70 to 200. That thing is, yeah. I mean, it's this big. It's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. It this takes up is, your cool bag when you put it in. Exactly. Now, I brought this up because this kind of transitions pretty easily into the image stabilization inside the Olympus EM5 Mark II. And I talked about this uh, last podcast with Mitch a little bit, and I wanted to discuss it with you. I watched this video a couple times now, and it seems so like 
the Olympus EM5, it, it does, a, first of all, it does an amazing job of stabilizing, especially compared yeah. to the GH4 with the 12 to 35 millimeter F2.8. But did you see the kind of not as sharp and crisp image that was coming oh, out yeah. of the EM5 Mark II? And I was Is trying that, to figure this out. I'm wondering if that's motion blur generated by the actual stabilization process inside the camera. What do you think? I I have to say it looks like codec noise. It's a little hard to tell because once again, we're YouTube. going through the YouTube filter here. Um, but it is big and the artifacting looks like H.264 artifacting. It does not look like simply just motion blur because something is moving. Um, ironically, uh, codecs are actually really good at compressing blurry images um, as opposed to sharp images just because there's generally le less data. It's a little easier for them to process. Um, it's when you have highly detailed images that then codecs start to suffer and they start to create a blocky mess. And that's exactly what I'm seeing here where there's so much motion going on that it looks like H.264, whatever bit rate they have it at, is not keeping up. Um, of course, I'm sure that... Um, uh, the, um, you know, they say here 30 megabit is what the Olympus is shooting at. I feel like the 30 megabit should look a little cleaner than that. So it may be a combination of things, but you're absolutely right for the fact that both of these are supposed to be on the same shutter speed. I'm just assuming it says 30 P. So I assume they're both doing yeah. 60th. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there is almost no detail and almost looks too blurry. It looks like this is at one ninetieth. Well, and one of the uh, things that was pointed out is that, well, they're not using the same lens. And while I agree they're not the same lens, those are actually, if I were to argue one way or the other, I would almost say that the Olympus 12 to 40 millimeter has an unfair advantage over the 12 to 35 millimeter. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion. I've used both of them and I think the Olympus is a little bit sharper. So if we're getting softer images out of the Olympus EM5 Mark II, I don't know if it's the lens. I don't think it's the lens. I think it's something going on inside the body itself. Yeah, I and I that's that's would be my guess too. I mean, it's not just that. Um, I know they probably didn't mess too much with color settings, but I'm seeing a lot more detail in the blacks on the Panasonic as well, uh, which I think generally has to just do with uh, how the sensor is set up and maybe less to do about the bit rate, just the kind of sensor they're using. I will say... The, the stabilization looks amazing. Yeah, it like, does. It, it really does. The way that he runs down that hallway, uh, it looks kind of like, it looks like what I've talked about before is a big camera on your shoulders. It looks like a film cam. It looks like we're looking at, uh, you know, 28 weeks later, some kind of shaky cam like that where you're using a bigger, more proper camera uh, and you're getting kind of this kind of niche kind of feel out of it that could be very cinematic for people um, as opposed to the GH4 just looks like a bloody mess because there's barely any stabilizer going on there because it's, it's not built to do this. It's not built to be ridiculous. It's built to emulate a tripod. So, um but yeah, especially too, you see the blurring of the railing when he goes up the stairs. It looks like the uh, uh, Olympus is starting to break out. At like, yeah, it, it looks like the Olympus was shooting at maybe like one thirtieth of a second. That's how blurry it looks. Maybe one fortieth of a second. But when the camera is still, it, it looks rock solid. Up. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was thinking. Maybe it's um, a motion blur caused by the sensor moving around is because when they stop moving for a second, everything kind of gets really crisp and good looking. And then, and it they looks just like the GH four, at least in YouTube, it side by side, it looks like, yeah, it can compete with the GH four. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, 
I don't think I don't think it's the sensor because it looks like the sensor is capable of it. My guess is it's the bit rate. Uh, this is just a whole lot of data for 30p to mess with. Um, I it would be interesting if we had access to the raw files. If you took the GH4 and pumped it back out as an H.264 30 megabit uh, variable one, like I'm sure the Olympus is running, and you could probably see maybe start to build up those artifacts and things like that. But yeah, it, it kind of makes you question, well, is this really worth it with the stabilizer and stuff like that? Stabilizer is fantastic, but if the image quality looks like that when there's any kind of motion, it's the smallest amount of motion too. And when I see the stabilizer being off on this camera for video, just because they weren't advertising the stabilizer, and I'm sure the stabilizer was off by the motion I was seeing, I wasn't seeing artifacts this bad. That's why I was looking at the Olympus as a possible like uh, camera to uh, compete with the GH4. Well, so... For the price of the Olympus, too, it's uh, $1,099, I believe, retail right now. And that's less than most of the three-axis gimbal systems that are available out there. Yes, that is true. And the smoothness of the footage that they're getting out of the Olympus uh, EM5 Mark II is good enough that I would almost say, you know, maybe you don't need a gimbal and maybe you could just get one of these if you're already a micro four-thirds shooter. That's where this really shines, even though it's blurry and I notice that there's like a, a little bit of a loss in the quality of footage that's coming, coming out of it when they're moving around. Mm-hmm. I don't think that matters. I don't think it matters enough for people to yeah. be upset about it because you're moving anyway. So there's going to be blur. People aren't really caring about that. They're caring about how much the camera just shaking around and, and how fluid the motion is. If you have really good fluid motion out of a small body like this and you can just run around with it without all the rigging and stuff that you would need for a three axis gimbal, hundred or a thousand ninety nine dollars. That's a pretty good price. I think the lower price, yeah. the lowest price gimbal comparatively is what the nebula well, is 4000 at 699 so and you well you compare to you're not also taking you're just looking at price you're not taking into account that it's an actual effort. camera well no 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 th- th- that but also the effort it takes to put a gimbal together that's true i mean this this thing's clearly just handheld two cameras on a pistol grip and he gets this kind of quality gimbals need to be balanced and if you practice and you do it you get better at it, you get faster at it but still you know people are tweaking files and uh, i forget what those files are called that you tweak for three axis but they're tweaking their files for a specific camera and lens loadouts and there's calibration that's done and then you switch lenses and you got to do a different kind of calibration and like so this you're right i didn't think of it that way this could become a viable option for people who want stabilized footage uh but don't want to bother with all the gimbal stuff or you know because a steady cam people are like oh the gimbal's going to destroy the steady cam but it takes almost as much effort to set up your gimbal it yeah, looks great true. once you got it running but so does a steady cam when you got it running i mean they're kind of different looks they have different jobs that they perform but uh they both require a lot of effort and a lot of knowledge to get them up and running and looking good and this guy flipped a switch and it looks good so yeah, and the form factor too you know with a stabilizer or any of those sorts of systems you're talking something that's at least the size of your chest that you're carrying around or yeah. in the case of a vest and the arm and everything else that's like 30 pounds that you're carrying around this olympus yeah. body is is the same size or a little bit smaller than the gh4 so it's tiny and it's providing this kind of stabilization. I mean, you're going to have to be a little bit careful. Uh, you could still see it kind of get shaky when he was running around and stuff, but for the most yeah. part, walking and, and mo- motion in general, 
Like it looks really good, even if it was blurry, and even if there's a you know you can get nit- nitpicky uh, pixel peeping. Still, man, I think this stabilization system is awesome, and I'm pretty excited wanna, to see the one D. I'm excited for it too. I want to see some more footage from it. I want to see uh, something that's a better quality than this YouTube video from it. Uh, but absolutely, especially if you're a guerrilla filmmaker, you're out trying to do some zombie movie for no money, and uh, you're out in a public space that you're not technically allowed. What are you to be trying in. to say? <laughs> an Olympus like this is going to definitely get by uh, a lot better than somebody who's bringing in a giant uh, gimbal. So, All right, we're rolling into uh, hour 20 here, so let's wrap oh, it down to the pick of the week here. We're having too much fun. Yeah, I know. When I get talking to Devin about uh, <laughs> this sort of like Kodak stuff, I get super excited and we go on for quite a while. <laughs> um, anyway, pick of the week. What do you got, Devin? Uh, I am trying again, uh, Remark HQ, which was something I tried a little while back. Uh, it looks like they've changed their pricing model. So they actually have free again, uh, for a while it was called something else. I think it was called cinema mark or something like that. Uh, they've changed their name. They've rebranded, not sure why. Uh, but, uh, before they had free and then that closed out after a few months and they went back to paid. And I actually really enjoyed a lot of the features. Now there's a few of those out there. And just to explain what Remark HQ is, is it's for letting other people review your footage. Uh, if you work with clients or things like that, uh, the, the way, instead of sending them YouTube videos and they send you back time markers, uh, or say in my case where they send you back time markers that are the opposite because the iPad showed them a countdown instead of a count up. So oh, I have no. to do reverse math. <laughs> for all of my notes. Um, this is a website where literally as they're watching it, they can make a note. And when they make a note, it notes it at that time. Uh, so it gives them a lot of control to mark up the video files as much as they want and then gives you footage. It also had a lot of great features where you could download uh, XML files that would automatically import those notes into most of your NLEs, whether you're using Avid or Premiere or something like that. So I got to go back in and I'm going to try the free mode with a few clients that I have right now um, that I know won't get upset if things don't work right the first time. Because uh, you, you should always test this stuff before you send it out to uh, an actual client that's going to possibly get very upset when you try to convince them to use a new website. But for the client side, it didn't require logins on clients. They just open up a page, whether they're on their iPad or their desktop, and it played the Vimeo file or slash YouTube file. And then it had s- stuff that was compatible with Mac or Windows or whatever. And they could just type it in. They don't have to download or install anything. And you instantly get those notes when they're looking at it and viewing it. You don't have to wait for them to collect it and email it to you. Or I watched it and I made some notes, but it's down on a pad of paper. I have to email them to you. So it should make stuff move a lot quicker and faster. And there's a few of these. And if you check blogs, I'm sure you'll find lots of reviews. I was a big fan of the Remark. I've got a few others I'm going to try out. But at least for now, my pick of the week is to give this a go because they do have free and a lot of the other ones don't and uh, see what kind of limitations there is and see if it can work into my workflow because otherwise their next package up is $120 a month, which is a little out of my price budget for (laughs) just getting clients to review files at that price. I'll just keep uploading to YouTube, but we'll check out the free and see how well they perform. If you go back to uh, episode 13 and check out the uh, end of the show there, uh, Johnny from uh, Canada, he has one that is a minute based program as opposed to a use based program. So it allows you to mark up X number of minutes a month. And so you can upload however much footage is the minute limit to be in the free zone. I believe the free zone was no more than 10, a 10-minute 10 clip. 
So if you have a 10 minute uh, piece of footage that you need to have marked up, you upload that and then you're locked in. You can't do any more that month. It's 10 minutes a month or something like that. And then if you wanted to go to higher, uh, a, a longer clips, then you pay. And I believe that one was $25 a month. So that might be another one to check out that the 10 minute part is what made it kind of novel is because, you know, for a lot of work, if you're doing like a, a little short commercial or something like that, 30 seconds or, you know, two minutes yeah. or something like that. So you're not doing a really long clip. And if it allows you to, to mark that up in a small format, then you could get away with using it for free for a lot of stuff. And then $25 is a lot True. less significant than, um, 125. <laughs> Yeah. And unfortunately it's escaping yeah. me what the name of it is, but, um, I'm uh, not finding on the notes either. He didn't write it down. So yeah, that's, that's why I can't find it either. Dang it, uh, but there's, there's a few of them. There's a few of them. And if you work with a lot of clients, it's worth testing them out and checking them out. Um, I'm surprised Adobe hasn't made this yet. Uh, but the great part is, is that a lot of these companies realize too, uh, don't make my client sign up for an account. Don't make my client have to click on anything. Like they should literally just click a link, the video opens and they make notes and that should be it. Because uh, it's only through that ease of use that you're actually going to have clients sign on to doing this kind of stuff. So uh, it can definitely speed up your workflow and make sure too that you're on the same page where clients will list stuff and you can check it off as you go and make sure you're not missing anything. That's another thing. All my edits this weekend have been uh, given me some notes over the phone that I've written down on post-it notes. They've given me notes in emails. And I think I've got a few text messages that have notes all for the same video. So I've got to combine all those notes together and manage all these notes where if they just used a website like this, they would already be in one place where I can check on them and make sure I'm going through the proper checklist. Now, one other free life hack is um, if you use Google Docs and you provide a doc link to them that's editable, one of the nice things since Google Docs is collaborative, I have my editing notes on a Google Doc and then the editors that I'm working with also. Th that might be more information than you want to provide for the clients, but it's nice to have them all in one place as opposed to, you know, I, in yes. the old days, I scribbled them down on a notepad and then I'm like, oh, shoot, I lost the notepad. Hey, do you have a copy of those or do, do you remember what time we needed to change the music tone and uh, put in like the cue or something like that? But if you have it in a, a Google Docs, then as you're updating it, one person can add stuff, you can add stuff and vice versa. And that's a good way to keep track of it. Plus, it's a good way to keep track of revisions because if you like you get done, you turn it over and they're like, I don't like that. Go back to the way it was. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe you saved two different versions of the file. I hope you did. But if you didn't, then you say, oh, wait a minute. Okay. Before the music started at uh, 105 and now it starts at 210. Uh, let's move it back to 105 and like make this one adjustment here and we're good to go. So that's mm -hmm. all those things. And there's a ton of different ways to do this, but that's a, a great thing to think about. My pick of the week is actually something a little more mundane, and I've actually got it here <laughs> on my 6D. This is one of the more overlooked, uh, basically, L-Glass for Canon cameras. This is the 135mm f2 prime lens, and you can get this guy for around $700 to $800 new, that, which is one of the more affordable primes that's on Canon's lineup, and it still has the red stripe, so you're getting... <laughs> getting the fanciness. So people will still think you're pro. <laughs> and it, it's not a big advantage over the 70 to 200 because that's F2.8 and this is F2, but it's enough of an advantage that it really makes it a joy to use. This guy has a focal change, so you can go from 0.9 meters to 1.6 meters, has all the regular stuff that you expect out of a Canon lens, and it feels nice and smooth. And look at 
that beautiful glass. Um, honestly, I like this for street photography and things like that because it's not as big as the giant white monster. So when yeah. I'm out shooting, uh, 135 is enough reach to really get stuff that's a ways away from you and still at F2 knock out the background completely and give you good, beautiful background bokeh. So this guy, I love this guy. And when I'm packing primes, a lot of times I skip out on my 50 and some of the other ones and just throw the 135 in there, especially if I'm going to be in a crowd and I'm going to be in the back of a scene, kind of just taking pictures and stuff like that. So the 135 millimeter F2 is well worth the investment. And it is an extremely cheap piece of L glass for your kit. Does it come with that big snoot? A big snoot? Yes, it does, actually. This is a little ridiculous. So here's the shade here. I mean, in this case, as much as I rant against uh, matte boxes, uh, you might be better off with a matte box than this monstrosity here. So that that little bayonet attachment shade is, is pretty darn big. Pretty substantial. Now, we're rolling towards the end of the cast here. Devin, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at impulsenetworks.tv, uh, where I'll be posting uh, reviews and a few other things. Um, right now, a lot of the content I'm making for clients I cannot post, uh, but I'm hoping to do a small After Effects tutorial on trying to do smoke generation uh, with just uh, the default plugins and not going to particular. Hey, hey. Doing some complex smoke Thanks, work. Thanks, so. man. A little inside <laughs> baseball here. Uh, Devin's working on the smoke effect for me on one of my short films. So thanks, man, for doing that. I appreciate it. <laughs> And on that note, you can find this podcast at any place that podcasts are distributed under the name DSLR Film New Podcast. It's available on SoundCloud. You can also swing over to Reddit at r slash DSLR and leave comments and questions and whatnot, and we will get back to them. I monitor that on a regular basis. Also, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com to check out the latest reviews and what feeds this basic podcast. So if you want to add something to the conversation or you want to talk to any of us, hit us up on any of the social media websites, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. We look forward to hearing from you. That concludes another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast.